just. God is love. You shall be called the fellowship of First John. <laughs> If you are new, that made no sense why people are laughing, so I'm sorry. But that we've been in First John 11 weeks, and so we had to do something a little bit different right there. That is the meshing of two crazy, one nice video and one crazy video. So just if you, yeah, I can't even explain it if you're new here. So welcome. We love you. We're glad you're here, but that was chaotic and crazy, but, but welcome. We're glad you're here. We are on our final of 11 weeks of First John. <coughs> Woo! Amen! <laughs> Me too, me too. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> Last week, so in our final chapter, which I think is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible, maybe along with Ezekiel, a couple in Ezekiel, maybe one or two in Isaiah, maybe a couple in Revelation, but John chapter 5 has like three or four difficult passages. We dealt with one last week. As we were looking at like when we believe in Jesus, we saw three major things, three results that came with believing in Jesus. One, that we obey him. And the second is that we become an overcomer. And the third, that we have eternal life. Oh, yeah, uh, bye, youth group. If you're going, Pastor Jimmy stood up to remind me. So if you're in the youth group and you'd like to go with Pastor Jimmy, he's going to go hang out upstairs and do some youth group stuff. If you want to hear, uh, stay here and ch- hang out, that's cool, too, whatever you like. Yeah, we're all in for all this. So. so when we believe in Jesus, there were three things. We become an overcomer, uh, we obey, and we have eternal life. Uh, from last week. So this week we're going to see another, I know I said there were going to be two things, but there was like a, a third hidden thing that I found this week as I was preparing. So there, there are three things we're going to find today. When we believe in Jesus, we become confident prayers, <coughs> however that one works. Uh, when we believe in Jesus, we have a, a new source, a new launch pad in life. And when we believe it in Jesus, we gain access to the truth. So that's where we're going today. And we're going to, uh, uh, there's a bonus today. There are three difficult passages in this section. And so like, yay. <laughs> so it's going to be fun. So the first, so we're going to do a couple things. It's going to be a little bit teachy, a little bit. So I was telling some of our staff that, uh, that this one is a little teachy. I like to be more preachy. Preachy is like, go and do this. And yeah, and this one has a lot of like, I think this means that. So it's a little bit more teachy today. So, you know, Depends on what part of scripture and different things come. So, but we're going to see three things. And the first is when we believe in Jesus, we become a more confident prayer person. We're picking it up halfway through 1 John. If you're in your Bible, if not, they'll be up on the screens. In 1 John chapter 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And, and if, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we also know that we have the request that we've asked for. So John, in just the previous uh, verse, has developed the idea of having confidence in Jesus. In the previous verse, he, he wrote specifically that when we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, we can know that we are the children of God. We can have this confidence of like knowledge, not like hope or like, oh, I really think it may happen, but we can actually know and have confidence in eternal life as we meet with Jesus. And so not only can we have confidence in eternal life that we saw last week, we can have confidence as we approach God in prayer. Now, God would have us, as we look at here, that if we ask anything in prayer. So God would have us ask anything in prayer. Now, that's not to imply that uh, if we ask for something, it will always be granted. But anything and everything is on the table to be asked for. So is it okay to pray for my sick little hamster? It's totally okay. You can absolutely pray for your hamster, uh, Kate, if she's sick. You know, my hamster died. and she's, I love Kate. It's my favorite pet ever. 
is it okay to pray for no rain on my wedding day? Yeah, it's totally okay to pray for that. Is it, can, can I uh, pray or is it important for me to pray about my business? Yeah, about what school I should go to, definitely. What person I should marry? You better be praying for that. Like, absolutely anything is available as a prayer topic. And so we see that here, that if we ask anything, no matter what it is, but we have to be asking according to God's will. God would have, have us ask according to his will. But, but that seems really weird, weird because if something's according to God's will, doesn't he already want to do it anyway? So why does, I, why does it matter if I pray about it? Right? If, if the thing is already according to, well, that's God's will, it's going to be done, then why should I even pray? Like, why, why does God even ask me to pray? Is God, why, why would God wait to accomplish his will until I pray? That's the, the indication that seems to be here, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and then some stuff is going to happen because of that. So God is actually waiting for me to pray so that his will could be done. How could this possibly be? With such an amazing, powerful un- God that's above the universe, he's waiting on me to pray according to his will? Why wouldn't he just accomplish it himself? And this concept really blows me away. Every time I get to it in Scripture, every time I think about it, that God has actually appointed us to work with him. In, in 2 Corinthians, uh, I mean, uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, it says that we are workers together with God. Can you imagine the audacity of me thinking I get to work alongside of God? God doesn't need me, but he's decided to use me anyway. God doesn't need you, but he's decided to wait for you to come along in prayer. Because he loves you and values you. Yeah, God could accomplish anything like this if he wants. He's God of the universe. So why does he wait for us to pray in his will? Because he says, I want you to be part of my team. And why is this important? Because the way that God created us, we need to be needed. We need to have have value and use. We need to feel love and important and, and that we're doing something in life. And if we're not, we're always going to be unfulfilled. That's how God created us. And so he says, okay, Sam, I'm going to allow you to be part of my will. I'm going to allow you to be part of my team. And I, he knows that I'm going to mess it up more than if he just did it himself. But because he values me as a human being and he values you as a human being, he values your prayer. He values you as part of the team. And and. I, it is audacious to say this. I mean, we think about the reverence of God. God is so big and important and amazing and perfect and better than me. For me to say that God is waiting for you and I to accomplish his will, it, it's, a, it's a bit terrifying. It seems like, how could I dare even say that? Well, I'm not saying that. I'm saying God's saying that. God's saying, I'm going to wait for you to pray about these things. And, and when you get according to my will, and my will and your will lines up, because you're following me and you're, you're walking in the light, remember, you're walking righteously, you're doing all these things, and you get lined up with my will, that's when I'm going to move. That's when I'm going to act, when you start praying for that. And then you can pray confidently, knowing that God's going to move as you're in his will. But this is a hard scripture, because I can think of times where Jesus was, when he was in the garden, he's like, God, uh, uh, I don't want to go to the cross, but not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus ultimately dies. So he was asking Jesus, I don't, he was, Jesus was asking, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. But God said, well, sorry that you don't want that, you're doing it anyway. And so even when Jesus is praying, sometimes we don't know the will of God, right? He was praying that, 
Now, if he was praying according to God's will, he'd say, dear God, I know I'm going to the cross tomorrow. He wouldn't say, take it away from me, because he would have known perfectly that he's in God's will. And so even that kind of passage has blown me away, you know, as I'm looking at that. So it may be part of when Jesus veils his divinity to become a human, though he's fully, fully God, maybe there are things that he's still getting in line with God's will on. We know that he's perfect in essence and he's totally God, but he seems to even pray this thing. So sometimes I don't know God's will. And I would say whenever you don't know God's will, if you're not sure of it, first we, we talked about searching scripture and then asking wise people, but, but pray it out if you're unsure. No, I know it's God's will that, that people get saved. I know my... my uh, some family members are not believers, so I know God wants them to get saved, and I'm praying that, and so I think I'm in line with his will, but those persons didn't get saved yet, and some have passed away, and well, I don't ever judge whether they came to Jesus or not, but, but, it, but sometimes this is a hard scripture because it doesn't always look like it. I can't always see the evidence of God answering those prayer requests. And so uh, this is a hard scripture, and, and I'll be honest, and I, I hope this doesn't hurt our spiritual lives. Like, I struggle with this. Like, God, I've been praying for this. It seems like it's in your will. But my, my dad hasn't accepted Jesus. And praying and praying and praying, and my, my dad died last year without confessing Jesus. But I've been praying that for 20 years. And ultimately, I don't know the heart of my dad as he passed away. And I hope that in the, his last moments he turned to Jesus, but, but I can't see it. And so this is a hard passage, because I know God's will is for people to be saved. I know God loved my dad. I know I love my dad. I think these things are in line, and then I don't see it, and that's why it's a hard passage, and I'll be honest, I don't always see it, and I don't always know how it works, and it's not a formula where you do X, Y, and Z, and then all of a sudden the magic pops out. You know, you say the right phrase to the genie in the lamp, and then he answers your request. That is not how God works. But, but as I look at the scripture, I struggle with it personally because, like, I've seen times where I think I'm in God's will. I think the scripture reveals this is God's will, and then it still doesn't happen. And so sometimes I don't, I don't have the answer. But I, but, I, but I know that God has proven himself so many times outside of that in my life that I still trust him even when I can't see it, even when I don't know what happened to my father and I'm worried that he didn't go to heaven but I trust God more than I trust me. I trust God more than I trust my own eyes or my own information. And so I'm going to have to leave it there on this one. So this why I think this is our first difficult passage because anytime we, well, how does this work? It looks like whatever we ask him that, that, he, that we're going to have that request that we asked of him. And so maybe the, the request, though, is no, like it was in Jesus' life, and I have to be okay with that. So, but prayer is much, much more than just casting our wishes to heaven, right? It's not rubbing the God lamp or I went to church this week, I gave some offering, God, I prayed three times, and so now grant my wish. But we think God's like that. We think, well, I haven't been righteous enough, so God's not going to answer my prayer or something. Like, I didn't do the right things. But it's not a formula. It's about getting yourself near to God, close to God, getting on his team, hearing his voice, reading his word, coming align with him. And then as we start to do that, we can have more and more confidence that God says, these are the prayers that I'm talking about. This is what I want to do in the world. As we are nearer to him, then it's more likely we pray along his will. You don't want to just cast wishes to heaven. He wants us to care about the things that he cares about, to be passionate enough to pray for those things passionately. Not just passively or like, eh, I kind of hope this happens. So when we become Christians, 
we become confident in our prayer more than before. Even though I confess to you sometimes that's difficult to be a confident prayer for me, just personally, because I, I don't know how it all works together, but I know absolutely God asks me to. If anyone, the next p- portion here says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. Oh, and there's sin that does not lead to death. Ah, of course. Perfect. So the first week we started 1 John, we told you guys to be reading through 1 John. And, and like, uh, by like Wednesday maybe of that week, my sister Tisha called and she says, I've been reading through 1 John and what the heck is 1 John chapter 5? <laughs> she said, what does this mean? And she was like, what the heck is going on? She called us the very first week. And so, so don't worry if you had that same Scooby-Doo moment where you're like, Raggy? What you're looking at that passage. You don't know what it means. You're not alone in your consternation over this passage. And so I've poured, so since that, this is 11 weeks ago, I've been like, God, what does this mean? Because I gave her some, oh, well, the thing about the Bible, <clears throat> you know, when God speaks and the de- you know, responds to corresponding things. Have a great, uh, i got to go buy dinner's ready. You know, like, so, the, uh, so over 11 weeks, I've been trying to try. Uh, we're at 7, 8, 10, 15 commentaries trying to figure out what this thing means. And, and so I had one about midweek, and then it was like muddy, and it, wouldn't, it wasn't totally helpful. And then I said, okay, God, I, I really need to try to figure this out. Help me to figure this out. And uh, <laughs> I've come up with a solution that's not in any commentaries. So this is always dangerous, right? Time out. <laughs> Time out. Spurgeon didn't write that, right? Like, Billy Graham didn't, I didn't see it. Now, lots of people may have it, so I'm not saying in the, what, 10, 10, 12 things that I looked, I I didn't find it, so. But I think that I have something that will help us understand it. The first thing I did was I think of what are all the options? So so when we're talking about if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, leading, uh, not leading to death, so what kind of death could there be? The Bible really uses two kinds, like a spiritual death or a physical death, Right? So that's my options on death. And my options are on life are sometimes we could have like uh, actual life, like be alive, or it could be like spiritual life. So now I have like uh, four things. So within that, I'll have four permutations if I pick these options. Does that make sense? If you're not a math person, neither am I. So I just, I just thought that that was the right word and it sounded smart. Uh, so anyway, so let's put in our options. So either it's, either it's spiritual death or it's physical death and the first sentence there. Right, so let, let's deal with that really fast and use those words within the verse and see if that helps clarify it. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to spiritual death. Now, that, can that possibly make sense? If anyone sees a brother committing a sin, a sin that does not lead to spiritual death, are there such sins, sin that doesn't lead to spiritual death? No, there's no such thing. All sin, uh, the consequences or the wages of sin is death, and that, that passage is spiritual death. We know that, that always every sin causes death. And so this first part can't be spiritual death. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense. So by default, it has to be physical death. Now, that may be a problem in a second, but, but it, physical death is the only option. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin and that sin doesn't lead to his physical death, then, then, then do something, right? So that's my only option here. So, so I have that part worked out. So... Uh, spiritual death is wrong because there's no such thing as a sin that does not lead to actual spiritual death. All sin is death. 
So it would seem then to be physical death. But then we have to decide, what does give him life mean after that comma, right? So here, let's try to say uh, physical life. So uh, I'm already using physical death. Remember, we've decided that one. If anyone uh, sees a brother committing a sin not leading to physical death, he shall ask and God will give him physical life? Well, that doesn't make any sense at all because if the sin doesn't lead to physical death anyway, why would God give him physical life? Like, he's already got the life. That, that wouldn't make sense at all. So that one can't actually be physical life. That one has to be spiritual life. And it's weird because he switches from physical to spiritual. That's the confusion of the passage. So God is saying, like, so if that's the case, what I'm saying, then we end up with physical death and spiritual life as terms to help us define this passage. So let's read it then. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin and it doesn't lead to physical death, he's actually still alive, like he should ask God and God will give him spiritual life from that sin to those who commit sins that don't lead to death. So I'm talking about sins that don't lead to physical death. There is a sin or there is a type of sin that leads to physical death. I'm not saying you should pray about that because the guy's already dead, right? All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that that doesn't lead to physical death. And, And so we have to then say, okay, if that's my interpretation, are there any examples of this in Scripture? And so for those of you who are fairly familiar with the Bible, you raise your hand and say, I know one in Acts. You say, remember when Ananias and Sapphira, this is at the beginning of the church, they come and they, they bring their offering to God and they lie about it. They keep half for themselves. And they're like, hey, apostles, here's all of the money from the sale of our house. And they said, are you sure that's all the money? And Ananias says, yes, it is. And God says, kill. He kills them immediately physically right then for sinning against God. Then his wife rolls in and they had dragged off that dead dad body or dead husband body. And then she shows up and the apostles say, oh, is this all of the money from the sale of the property? Oh, yes, it is. And boom, boom, dead again right away. And so physical instantaneous death for sinning against God immediately. We have that example clear in Acts. And so is this, remember in our framework, we always ask, is there any examples of this in scripture? Uh, Spiritual sin causing a physical death. Now, is it any good to pray over Sapphira right then? Dear God, I pray you'd forgive her sins like she did. She can't repent, right? It's a wrap for her. In in Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have also an example where uh, Paul is writing about people who had died because they abused communion. So they hadn't been honoring communion rightly, and they actually died at the church. And so again, we see a physical punishment for a spiritual sin. And so I think we have examples for this in the, in the Scripture. So it would seem that a believer can sin to the point where God is like, you know what? It is better for you to just get off the planet. Now, might Ananias and Sapphira be in heaven? Sure. Remember, death isn't that important if you believe in Jesus. It's totally not important. So God maybe say, don't you lie like that. Boom, get up here. You know, and they're like, how dare you? you know, sorry, my bad. You know, okay, get into heaven. Don't do that again. Well, I can't because I'm in heaven, <laughs> you know, so... And maybe those, those people who are taking the communion, you know, they're believers and, and they're getting drunk ahead of time or doing stuff that they shouldn't. God's like, none of that. Come home. Boom. Kills them. And then drugs. To give an example to the church, but to also maybe it's just better for them to be home than it is to be down here causing them a ruckus, right? Any of you had kids and it's better for your kid to be grounded than running out crazy, right? Sometimes that's better for the kid and for the world and for the universe and stuff. And so it seems like that to me. So I think that uh, I, I think kind of, or, or probably, or, or maybe, like certainly, <laughs> that that's like what this passage is.
So if that's the case, then the passage would then be saying, if there are sins that lead to immediate physical death, like don't worry about it, you can't pray about that. But in all other situations, if that person has sinned and they are still alive, you absolutely, as a brother and sister in Christ, should be praying for them. So we get back to this confidence in prayer he had just mentioned. Now it kind of makes sense. Look, if they're not dead yet, there's still a chance. So it says you should be praying for that. But what do we do? When we see a brother in sin, what's the first thing we do? Judge them, right? (laughs) Oh, that's just me? (laughs) The first thing... I never judge them. I love everybody, right? So the first thing we do is judge them. And the second thing we do is we tell them to stop that sin. And then the third thing we do is we condemn them. And then we kick them out of the church. And we didn't even pray about it yet. But the first thing the Bible says is if you have a brother or sister who's in sin and they're not dead, there's still a chance for them, then you've got to start to pray for them. And remember what happens with the prayers of the person who's in the will of God? They get answered. We start to pray over someone's sin and to love them and care for them and pray for them and then have confidence as we pray for them. We're talking about brothers and sisters, believers in Christ, that God will return them to him. And I'm going to throw in for some of you, if you continue to sin after I've approached you several times and prayed about it, I'm going to pray that God takes you back to heaven right now. You know, Not really. <laughs> that would be kill you, right? But, but that seems to be what we're looking at here so that we can have confidence in prayer as we pray for people. But we don't always do that first. We always do all the other things, and maybe at the end of it, you tack on a tiny bit of prayer. But the Bible would have us reverse it. If you see any of your friends in sin, and you love them, and they're not dead, then you've got to start to pray about that before you approach them. But what do we want to do? We want to approach, and we want to point out their sin. We want to show them the truth. But the Bible says only share the truth if you could do it in love. If you cannot do it in in love, do not share the truth. It will only condemn people. That is a principle for our church, you guys. Don't come and share truth with me if you can't do it in love. It will only hurt me. And I will not share truth with you unless I can do it in love because I care and love about you. Not because I want to show you how bad you are, that I'm better than you, or that that I can compare because I'm smarter and I know the Bible more and I've done more spiritual things. We can't have any of that. Otherwise, there'll be no repentance. We pray first. And if ever God does call you to approach, then you do it in love and in truth. So that's the first thing. We can have confidence in prayer. The second thing is when we believe, we have like a new source of living, like a new platform for launching on like a new origin story you had the old like batman one but now you have like a new a new launch place we know that everyone has been uh that everyone who has been born of god does not keep on sinning but he uh, who was born of god protects him and the evil one does not touch him we know that we are from god and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one so the battle against sin like at the beginning here, we see it's all essential that we keep our minds set on who we are in Jesus Christ. If we are born of him, then we have the resources to live sin-free. Now, this has been covered ad nauseum over the last 11 weeks. If you haven't heard those, please hear the podcasts again, that, that God has given us freedom in Christ to live sin-free, and he's given us the resource to do it. But then we get another hard text here in the, after the comma at the first sentence. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's easy. But he who was born of God protects him. And depending on what version you read, you'll read it four different ways. And so uh, let me give you the two Greek translations that are possible. And the weird thing is that they're not the same. Okay? So it's a bit ambiguous in Greek. So the first one, the first idea we're talking about, but he who was born of God protects him. 
So the first option is the, the he who was born of God means Jesus. In that sense, it would say, but Jesus protects him being the believer or the person who is supposed to not keep on sinning. You see how that would be the referent then? So the, the first option is that uh, this, this sentence says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but Jesus, he who is born of God, so the, the one would be a capital, the, the capital W, like who was born of God, the Jesus. Jesus protects that believer. That's the first, uh, and that's a real reading in Greek. That, that totally could be the reading. Now, the second reading is this. The second reading is, uh, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that believer, protects himself. So the, the believer does something to protect himself so that he can stand against the evil. Now, if it's the first one, we have another confirmation that Jesus is here to help us and he's here to protect us from the evil one, giving us confidence in spiritual welfare. So if that's the translation that the Greek's supposed to be, like it, the, the who the one is, that's Jesus, and we're the, the believer is the him, then that is just a reconfirmation of a fact established on other unambiguous scriptures, right? That Jesus is here to protect us, to be on our side, that kind of thing. If it's the second translation, then we have the idea that believers join in the process of protecting ourselves against the enemy. Now, this is also a fact that's established by other unambiguous scriptures. Resist the devil uh, and he will flee from you. So either way, we have an idea that would be reflected in other scriptures. But I think the Greek here is, an, is ambiguous, and I don't know which uh, Paul was intending. I just don't, I just don't know. But, but I think both are okay. So whichever ones. But the wording and the phraseology was really weird until I... So whichever one you like, I think you're free to pick between those two. But I think, again, the point here is, as we look at the bottom, the, the, the last sentence here, we know that we are from God. Like, look, so however, whether it's Jesus protecting us or we're also standing against, alongside of Jesus, bolstering us to stand against the evil one, look, we are from God. We have a different source. It's a different launching place. It's not like me coming out of the world and kind of joining God. I am over here with God, and God and I are against the world. My starting point is not from the framework of the world. My starting point is from the framework of God. I am not on this side anymore. And I can't look at myself as I'm on this side anymore. I am not. I am on this side. And I got to view myself that way. It is me and God against the world. It's not God coming to still try to fight me as I'm fighting in the world. I'm not in the world. The moment that I accept Jesus and ask him to be my savior, I have switched sides. I have switched allegiance. And this is now my launching point. And I've got to, if I view that at this way, then I can look at, ooh, those things are the world. They're coming at me, but I'm on this side. It's me and God against this. It changes the origin story. It changes the place from which we're doing battle, right? I'm not here going like, God, help me in the middle of this world here. They're overcoming me. I'm not there. I'm here, and they may be coming at us, and us, God and I, we get to fight against them from a new platform, a new place. I am no longer in the world when I accept Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I cannot view myself as a person of this kingdom. Because if I do, then I will always fail because I'm going to act like the other kingdom citizens. But if I start to view myself as, no, I'm not from the world anymore. 
Don't lie to me, Satan, to tell me that I am, because I'm not. I, it doesn't, yes, you're going to throw my own sin against me in my own face. Yes, you sinned, but that did not change my leash. This is my new platform. This is where I'm speaking from. This is where I'm fighting from. I'm not fighting from over here. And I think it matters in our life that we know that we are from God. If we're born of him, we're set off from the world. We're no longer a part of that system. It's, it's not where we are anymore. And so knowing that we're free to be who Jesus wants us to be here, it doesn't matter what you all think. I don't care what you think because this is my team. This is my place. This is my home. This is my family. I am not part of this any longer, this other one. We stand in opposition to the world with God. So we got this big backup and we're like, yeah, take that world we got God on our side. The third thing we're seeing today, when we believe in Jesus, we gain access to the truth. We know that the Son of God has come and he's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and he's the eternal life. Understanding has to be given. We can't attain it on our own. We can't reach up and say, God, I'm going to grab onto you and understand the things of you. If God does not reveal himself to us, we'd never find him. We would remain lost. But God came down on this planet and through Jesus Christ demonstrated love towards us. And the Holy Spirit is active and working and calling and, and revealing truth to us. We know him and we can know him because he's revealed himself to us. More than in any way, it's through Jesus, Jesus Christ. We see the personality and character of God as we look at Jesus. We can believe in Jesus and we can gain access to the truth. Like if we were in this community still, you are so blind, you are so dark, you can't see anything. And God comes and, and he gives you light and you come to confess Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And then now all of a sudden you have access to the God library. You have access to the things that are in the light. And he begins to real, reveal those things. Him who is true reminds us of this theme that is throughout the, the letter of 1 John. That we're not talking about a false Christ. We're not talking about the, the false Jesus of the false teachers. We're talking about the real true Christ who is knowable. God is true. He is noble and he is near. He's within reach. God is true in proposition. God is true in reality. God is truth in revelation. He's truth in experience. We can know him by, be, by being near the, the, the actual Jesus who says that we can have him come and live inside of us and then he'll send the Holy Spirit to empower us. God is knowable and he's near and he's accessible. He was a man, but he wasn't only a man. He was true God, eternal life. John doesn't promote the humanity of Jesus over his deity. He promotes them both equally and says they are knowable. You can know God as you know Jesus. And it is true. Through a step of faith, we can embrace that truth. And then we're getting to the last verse, the coup de grace of 1 John. We've waited 11 weeks to get it. And it says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You didn't mention idols the entire... I got love, I got fellowship, I got God, I've got uh, truth versus error. And you coup de grace me with little children, keep yourself from idols. What the heck? <laughs> so it may seem like a strange way to end John's letter, right? 
And it doesn't even fit, but wait, does it? Has this been the theme all along? And I totally got it with fellowship. I got it wrong, right? So what we meant to say was the theme of 1 John is stay away from idols. No, it fits exactly with the theme that we worship and we fellowship with a true, right, living God. The enemy of fellowship with God is idolatry. It's, it's fellowship with something that's not God. It's embracing a false God or a false idea, not the true God. The world, that's what Satan is trying to do. Satan is trying to counterfeit God. And the best way to do a lie is to have 80% of the truth in there or 90% and just a little bit of error. That's the best way to lie. In case you ever want to lie to your parents, that's the best way. Have most of it be true. I was with Susie. We were out late. We uh, went to a friend's house. Those are all true. You didn't mention it was in East L.A., right? Like, this is a little bit. I left a part out. It's okay, right? Best lies are 80% truth, and that's, and that's what the, the enemy in the world does. They offer this false lie. The world is trying to counterfeit God. An idol is an attempt to replace God with something else. Idolatry, whether it's really obvious, like bowing down to a statue, but none of us do that. Or maybe it's subtle, like living for your career or living for someone, your wife, your kids. If you're living for your kids, you just got tricked. That's idol worship. If you're living for your parents, you just got hosed. That's idol worship. If you're living for something other than Jesus himself and God himself, you have bought the counterfeit. Isn't that crazy? And so you're trying to fellowship with God, but you think it's here? And God's like, you're missing me. I'm over here. You want to have true fellowship, you've got to have the true God. You want to have true fellowship, you've got to have the right God. You can't have all these false idols. No wonder John ends with keep yourself from idols. It's how we protect our fellowship with God. God first, above all things, what a great way to end the letter. Even though maybe at first it didn't make sense. So I was looking back over 1 John, and I was so encouraged as I was looking at John, because, but I, I think Jericho Road Church is absolutely in the center of God's will. And we've made it our mission statement, like literally our mission statement, like actually our mission statement. What's our mission statement? You all could say it together, right? Love God. I was like, wow, that was passionate. That was exciting. <laughs> You see the big banner when you walked in? That was our mission statement, right? So love God and love... I, I know you had it right. So I, everybody, like, I'll, I'll give you credit, right? So we've literally made it our mission statement as Jericho... Nice, love God and love... We have a slide on that. I didn't even prepare. They're so fast in the back. Literally, that's our mission statement. Amen. Who's in the back? Is that James again? All-star? Nice. We've literally made it our mission statement to love God and love other people. First John confirms that, that our church, you guys, we are on the right path. I mean, we heard it basically like a hundred times over the last like 11 weeks, right? To love God, love others, love others, love others, love one another, love the brothers, love the other brothers, and love the other brothers, and like love God and love God. He's God, he's true. You gotta love God, pray to God, love God. You know, that's what we heard like hundreds of times. If not, listen to the podcast, you'll be like, wow, it's the same sermon over and over. But I'm so blessed to be on this journey with you guys. I'm so thankful that over the next 20 years, we get to live out this truth that we've discovered in 1 John together. Let me pray for us. Father, what a joy for me to be in a community of people who, who want to embrace truth, 
who want to know you, who want to love people. And I look out among my friends, and I'm so stoked that they would let me be here as their pastor because I think that they're trying to be in your will. I think they're trying to walk in the light. They're trying to walk in righteousness. They're trying to, to, to be near to you, God. You are amazing. We love you. And as we're reading your scripture, we're reminded that you love us and we don't deserve it, and yet you still do. And God, we respond in our hearts with thank you. Thank you for loving me when, when I don't feel lovable. Thank you for loving me when, when I'm a, a disaster. When I don't, even, I don't even know what the Bible means when I was trying to read it sometimes. When I don't know how to handle my own anger. I don't know how to get rid of my own pettiness. And I don't know how to deal with our addictions. You still love us in the middle of that. When we call on the name of Jesus, we switch sides and we are yours. Thank you, God, that I am in a community that wants to follow you. Let's just spend a minute together just telling God that we love him. Allowing him to speak these words to you. I love you. And then asking that he would do the work of 1 John in our lives, that we could fellowship with him and fellowship with one another. Would you pray those things with me?